Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remix. Thank you for calling the Medicine Remix hotline. Please leave. Message! At the sound of the beep. Thank you. Hey guys, uh, this is Eric Madrid. I'm a family physician in Southern California. Just came across your podcast. I'm new on Anchor, so I was kind of looking to see what was out there and uh, found your guys's. Um, stuff. I uh, started listening to it and I like what you guys have. I'm glad you were able to find a, a, a nice outlet to help balance this uh, crazy life of uh, medicine that we all have undertaken. Anyway, talk to you guys later. All right. Have a good evening. What's really good, Remixed Hood? It's your boy, Reesh. It's your podcast, Medicine Remixed. And today's episode is another installment of our Dr. Mentories interview series, where we talk to doctors from various specialties in medicine that vibe with the remix culture that we're trying to create on our show, Medicine Remixed. And our guest today is Dr. Eric Madrid, who is a board-certified family medicine doctor with an interest in holistic medicine, otherwise known as root cause medicine. And we will talk about what that means in this episode. Dr. Madrid received his bachelor's degree in microbiology and molecular genetics at UCLA. He then graduated from medical school at The Ohio State University School of Medicine and completed his family medicine residency at Presbyterian Intercommunity Hospital in Whittier, California, where he served as chief resident. He currently practices at the Rancho Family Medical Group, which is affiliated with the Loma Linda Medical Center, and he is also an assistant clinical professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine. He's the author of The Vitamin D Prescription, The Healing Power of the Sun and How It Can Save Your Life. So you already know we're going to be talking about some vitamin D in this episode. And Dr. Madrid's writing has also been featured on Kevin MD and his podcast Heal Thyself has been featured on Apple Podcasts Top Health Podcasts and has even made appearances on the top overall charts several times. This episode covers a lot of ground from nutrition and supplements doctors doing social media and podcasting, and the perspective-hacking nature of doing medical missionary work. There's a lot of valuable nuggets in this one for anyone listening, so without further ado-do, enjoy this phenomenal documentary interview with Dr. Eric Madrid on the one and only Medicine Remixed. Hello? Hey, Eric. Hey, what's going on? How's it going, man? It's Reesh. Hey, nice to talk to you, Reesh. Nice to talk to you, too. Um, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. Absolutely. So I was on your Instagram stories earlier to see what you're up to, and it looks like you were uh, up in Big Bear Mountain. I am, yeah. Big Bear uh, Big Bear is a kind of a mountain resort here in uh, Southern California, and uh, we're, we're blessed to have a uh, kind of a second home up here. So I'll frequently come up here just to... Uh, relax and uh, do some extra reading and studying and writing and, you know, try to help my brain get a little bit more creative as I get away from the uh, busyness of everyday life down the hill. Oh, that's awesome. How often do you do that? I come up here about twice per month, usually about two weekends per month at least, sometimes more, but at minimum twice per month. 
Okay. And is that something that you do with your family or you kind of go up there uh, alone? It varies. Um, the kids, you know, I have, I have three kids. My oldest is 20. I have a 17 year old and a 16 year old. The first year they were actually very excited, uh, you know, coming up here and then now they're kind of over it. So yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of like, Hey, if you guys don't want to go, that's fine. I'm going. Right. Right. Sometimes my wife will come up here with me as well. So it just, it just kind of depends, but it's only about an hour and a half drive from my house. So it's not that big of a deal. That's great. Yeah, I definitely want to dive into some of your routines and, and practices. I mean, it sounds like you have so much stuff going on from, you know, your family medicine practice and you're also, you know, teaching medical students and that you do a lot on social media and you have the podcast, you're a husband, you're a father and, uh, you know, kind of how you balance all of those things. I definitely want to get into a little bit later, but one of the things that we try to do to, to kind of start off these interviews. I mean, we consider doctors like the closest <coughs> thing society has to actual superheroes without you know sounding too corny. But uh, we want to typically start these interviews by asking what your first comic book uh, kind of looks like for you. In other words, what is the Eric Madrid MD, AKA holistic health man? What is the, the origin story there? Well, yeah, so it's interesting. I've been interested in, um, you know, holistic medicine, integrative medicine, actually, ever since I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that, actually, I was inspired by an uh, aunt of mine who was an RN, and she also was interested in using medicine or using uh, food and herbs as medicines as opposed to pharmaceuticals. I like this right here. So she kind of actually taught me and gave me some information. And to me, it, it just made a lot of sense that if we as future healers, you know, or as a future doctor, if I could help encourage patients to live a healthy lifestyle and eat appropriately, that, you know, that, that would obviously bring a lot of satisfaction. And I always have said that to me, it's a lot more um, satisfying to help prevent a hundred or a thousand patients from having a heart attack or a stroke than to actually try to treat them after it's already happened. Right. But interestingly, I, I actually started off upon graduating from high school. I wanted to be a doctor, but like a lot of people, I thought it was going to take too long. And, and I was kind of thinking I might settle for second best. And I actually started off as a business major. Okay. Um, fortunately, I went to a community college because, uh, you know, changing majors would have been very expensive otherwise. Right. So I spent two years at uh, Cerritos Community College in the suburbs of, uh, of Los Angeles here in Southern California, taking a lot of business classes and so on. But deep inside, I still had a desire to be a doctor. I'm gonna be a doctor. So about two years after, you know, when I was just about ready to transfer, I kind of had a you know a wake up call and said you know what why am I doing this I'm not gonna I'm not going to you know enjoy I'm gonna have regrets in my life if I don't pursue medicine so then I actually switched over to a science major and ended up spending four years at a community college in total before I transferred to UCLA. Okay. Ironically, right, my first concern was I didn't want to waste time and there I was uh, spending a couple extra years because I had changed my majors. But again, I think education in any form is never really a waste. Yeah. And it would you know, soon turn out that it would be of my benefit later on, that business education. So of course, I go, you know, go to UCLA, uh, 
microbiology, molecular genetics. I ended up um, going to medical school at uh, Ohio State, or, or the Ohio State as uh, it's known in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of Californians, as you may know or may not know, end up leaving the state. I think, are you from California? No, actually like the opposite from New York. Oh, oh okay, okay, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, so a lot of Californians, because there's so many people here, a lot of Californians end up leaving the state of California to go to uh, medical school, and I was one of those. Okay. Uh, so I ended up going to Ohio State, did my family medicine residency. And, and as you know, there's so much material to cover while in medical school and even residency. We're just trying to keep our head above water and trying to learn everything that we need to learn. And obviously, under that traditional approach, there was not much focus and attention put to uh, nutrition and Right. holistic medicine and integrative approaches uh -uh. so it kind of fell by the wayside i'll be honest I, I kind of you know spent those seven years of med school and residency just kind of trying to learn basic medicine and then upon uh you know graduating from residency i kind of you know my, my flame got re reignited and i started uh, you know just reading more learning more going to conferences studying more and just really deepening my knowledge in uh in holistic medicine functional medicine integrative medicine and really trying to uh, you know, practice more of what now seems like a lot of people are calling root cause medicine, trying to get to the root cause of the problem as opposed to simply giving a, uh, a pharmaceutical for a symptom. Right. And, right. and that's kind of where I am now. I'm kind of more of an integrative doctor. I'm you know, certified in family medicine, but you know, and I obviously treat people uh, conventionally, but a lot of times we'll use an integrative approach and really promote uh, diet and lifestyle changes. And, and when appropriate, if there's certain uh, supplements that can be effective, we'll add that or use that either in place of or in addition to certain, uh, you know, pharmaceutical drugs that the patient may need. Right. You know, kind of going along with that, you know, the, the word holistic in general can have somewhat of a polarizing effect. So like, how do you, you know, go about defining what a holistic approach is, especially for, you know, people within medicine that might be critics of kind of the connotations of what's a holistic medical approach using supplements and, you know, other entities that aren't the traditional treatments uh, modalities that we use. Right. Well, I think if you if you just think of uh, the term holistic, it means really just kind of taking a comprehensive approach. So One of the things in, you know, in medicine is that we, we tend to take a very linear approach. So if a patient has high cholesterol, yeah, you know, the commercials say, you know, when diet and exercise is not enough, talk to your doctor about, you know, Lipitor or whatever the, right, you know, the medication right. is. When diet and exercise are not enough, adding Lipitor may help. But let's face it. I mean, you know, diet and, and exercise is almost never very limitedly counseled to patients, uh, right? Because the, the kind of system that we have, it's so rushed, you know, we have our 15 minute appointments, we're just trying to solve a problem, give a person a drug and get on to the next patient. But in reality, that approach to someone with high cholesterol really should be discussing or insomnia or anxiety or depression or whatever the problem is. We really should be discussing diet, nutrition, you know, exercise, how is that individual balancing their life? How are their relationships? You know, how are they sleeping at nighttime? So in reality, that is a holistic approach, just right. taking all these aspects into uh, consideration. But I think we're frequently too quick to jump to the pharmaceutical. Talk to them. Right? We say the patient comes in with high cholesterol, they see the cardiologist, they, you know, had McDonald's three times that week, but because mm -hmm. they're on 80 of atorvastatin, their cholesterol looks great. Worse. And the heart doctor says, hey, great job. Whatever you're doing, keep it up. Whoa. Right. And a lot of times these medicines can become an excuse 
for us, you know, it's almost like they wipe away evidence of the, you know, of the crime scene. Yeah, you know, that, that's that's interesting that you say that because, you know, as you were kind of talking about this, I was reminded about the movie um, Minority Report. Have you seen that movie? Uh, it's been a while. Yes, yeah, yeah, but you know it. what I'm talking about, the whole idea of like pre-crime, like preventing a crime before it happens. They were going to be waiting for me in the car. He was going to rape me. I was going to be stabbed. Right here. Within a year, pre-crime effectively stopped murder in our nation's capital. <laughs> And, you know, thinking about the analog in medicine, it's like, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be so great if we had a system like that? And then it's like, wait, we actually do. We actually do have that system and we know what's going to kill you. Yeah, we right. don't really treat it as like this amazing thing that, that we have to be able to prevent disease. So um, I'm, right. totally, I'm totally with you. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you a great, a quick example here too of a way that we kind of miss the boat. So, so when we think, let's take hypothyroid for example right mm -hmm. if you go online if you look up at mayo clinic you know dot com or you know merck merck manual or any of the leading medical journals you'll see that the leading cause of hypothyroidism worldwide is iodine deficiency right mm -hmm. the leading cause of thyroid nodules worldwide is iodine deficiency mm -hmm. okay when was the last time you've ever seen an endocrinologist or a primary care doctor check an iodine level on a patient Never, almost never. Yeah. Right. And because we are, we've been taught that the reason being is because since we supplement or since we have fortify our salt with right. iodine, right. That we don't have iodine deficiency in this country. Right. But when was the last time you told the patient to add all the salt they want to their food? Right. True. True. Yeah. For the last 20 years, we've been doing the exact opposite. We say avoid salt, avoid salt. Yeah. Right. And interestingly, it was, a, I think it was a 2013 study based on the NHANES data. You know, the, uh, the government kind of gets together nutrition uh, and health information and dietary information and puts out a report. And in the United States, so they looked at people in the United States. Okay. This is a few years ago in the United States. 10 to 11 percent of the u.s population has a mild to moderate iodine deficiency won't air mm. okay and this is based on on government data it's not you know it's not conspiracy medicine journal right it's it's mainstream thyroid medicine journals right 10 to 11 percent have a mild to moderate deficiency and if you were to actually factor in a mild deficiency based on that i would i would estimate probably another 10 percent. so we're talking almost one in five people in the united states have an iodine deficiency either mild moderate or severe uh interestingly 10 percent of the population has thyroid disease but again so so my approach to medicine is like hey let's you know let's try to get to the root cause yeah you have thyroid nodules you have an underactive thyroid you know my own daughter actually had an iodine deficiency mm. and uh you know, so we're, so we're treating her just with a, a multivitamin. I'm not getting, right. you know, I'm not getting crazy. But again, but the fact is, is that, you know, if we didn't, you know, know this, we wouldn't look. And the fact is, you know, 10 to 20 percent is a pretty high number for us to completely ignore. Oh, yeah. No, that's significant. So that's why I use uh, holistic medicine. I kind of, you know, go back to the basics. I think sometimes we get too uh, caught up in all the science and too caught up in, you know, and all the, the medications. You know, I've had many patients, you know, go into AFib in the hospital and, and they're on, you know, proton pump inhibitors and diuretics and, you know, neither the ER doctor or, um, or the cardiologist, you know, ever checked a magnesium level. So I also uh, admit patients, uh, I kind of also work as one of our hospitalists for our, for our medical group. But sure enough, I'll check the uh, magnesium level and it's severely low. Mm -hmm. And I've had cases where patients did not respond to diltiazem, but 
all of a sudden we give them a bolus of magnesium and they go back into a, you know, they convert back to a normal sinus rhythm or they at least become rate controlled. Right. Deltiazem is great and it works, but sometimes again, we forgot the basics of, hey, let's check this person's magnesium level. So I think that, that's what I try to do with the med students, you know, that come and rotate with us. I say, hey, all this stuff that we're learning is super important, but don't rebuild the engine without, you know, first checking to make sure there's gas and oil in the car. That's right. It seems like medicine nowadays is such a reactionary practice, like you're describing. We're just throwing pills and surgery at things, um, whereas we're not really emphasizing what the root cause is and changing people's lifestyles. So as, you know, new agey as some people might find some of these practices, it's actually like going back to the fundamentals, uh, essentially, and really, you know, going back to the basics. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that with uh, the culture of medicine nowadays. Um, you know, just as far as the, since we're talking about supplements and things like that, the supplement industry is another like very controversial sector of our society because of how highly unregulated it is and how little evidence there actually is about so many products that are out there. You're a supplement company today. You do not need approval from the FDA before a product is marketed. You can make health claims without prior approval from the government and you don't have to prove the safety or effectiveness of your product before putting it up for sale. So in your practice, what supplements, if any, do you yourself believe in and do you recommend to your patients and what supplements do you caution against, if any? So again, the ones that I use most commonly, honestly, would just be a simple multivitamin, for example, for patients, because so many of us have a poor diet and, you know, depending on our stress levels, you know, we each have kind of a unique uh, metabolic demands, right? Not, you know, not everybody needs to drink eight glasses of water a day, right? If you're, if you're 90 years old with congestive heart failure, that's going to worsen your symptoms. So, you know, if you're a marathon runner and you're running 15, you know, 10 to 15 miles, you know, in training every day and you drink eight glasses of water a day, you're going to be dehydrated, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Shaquille O'Neal might need more nutrients than an Olympic, uh, you know, gymnast who's, you know, 410. So, so again, we have to realize that each person has a unique metabolic demands and requirements. So to assume that one size fits all is kind of, I think a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so number one would be a multivitamin just because there's something like what 90 vitamins and minerals. So I figured we're either on a biochemical level, you either deficient, you have the exact amount you need or you have excess. So right. Only one of those three things. And with our poor diet that we have, you know, chances are that we're not in excess of vitamins and the chances of us having the exact equal amount that we need is low. So, you know, so the evidence is actually we're quite deficient in a lot of things. And so that's why I start off with the multivitamins. And then uh, depending on certain symptoms, if patients are having leg cramps, you know, migraine headaches, I've had a lot of success using magnesium, mm. primarily a chelated form though, not, not the magnesium oxide. That's not absorbed very well. And that just kind of, you know, that's great if someone has diarrhea, yes. um, right. but usually we'll use a chelated form like a citrate or melate or something like that with magnesium. And I've had great success in helping to prevent migraine headaches, help get rid of nocturnal leg cramps, muscle twitches, and so on. And a lot of these patients, again, are on maybe PPIs or diuretics. So th we know that those drugs actually will bring upon a magnesium deficiency. Right. I've had some patients, you know, I've utilized St. John's Wort, for example, for some patients with mild to moderate depression. And there's pretty good evidence that, you know, St. John's Wort could, you know, can work for that. And what else? A lot, I have a lot of seniors as well, mm -hmm. and right now, you know, there's a lot of uh, concerns or how do we treat pain in the senior citizens or just in people in general, and there's a bigger version towards using opiates, uh -huh. uh, and so that kind of leads us with NSAIDs, mm -hmm. but a lot of seniors also have chronic kidney disease, 
you know, stage three, stage four, whatever. That's right. So we can't really use NSAIDs on this population. We can't use narcotics on this population. Tylenol is no longer effective. So like, what do we do, you know, as healthcare providers to these patients that come to us and say, hey, I'm having severe pain, what do, you know? So I've had good success using turmeric. Uh -huh. For example, and, and there's studies out there that show that it has a, a similar method of uh, mode of action. It can uh, inhibit the uh, cyclooxygenase or act as a COX inhibitor. Mm -hmm. You know, also there's evidence that turmeric and the herb boswellia also can help reduce inflammation. And I've had many patients who've been able to either reduce their uh, need for opiates or reduce their need for NSAIDs because they've started taking turmeric or omega-3 fish oil and they've been able to reduce their inflammation to a tolerable level. Yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> My family is originally from India and you know we use a lot of turmeric in our cooking um, right. But even on top of that, you know, my background's in orthopedics and I have had my mother start taking turmeric supplementation on top of the turmeric that we, you know, have in our diet. And, you know, again, this is probably not something that has been studied long enough for us to, you know, really prove to some people that it makes like a significant difference. But anecdotally, I will say that my mother has definitely seen a difference and a lot of other patients that, um, you know, I've taken care of have as well. Do you typically recommend that they take turmeric in the pill form or also kind of like use it in their cooking or how do you uh, yeah, prescribe that? Both. both actually. So I will encourage them to, uh, you know, to use it in their cooking. And, you know, we have the turmeric powder in our, in our spice cabinet. Uh -huh. uh, and, uh, and then also in a pill form as well. Usually as a capsule, I usually have them take it maybe two to three times a day, uh, around 500 milligrams. And, uh, you know, that helps usually at least with their baseline and then, you know, and definitely, you know, to use it, you know, in their food as well. Okay. And is that something that you would recommend to only people that are having pain or is it something that you feel like everybody should be taking? I think it's a good supplement actually for, for a lot of people. Um, there, you know, there's other studies too that would suggest that it's also helpful for, for the brain and for memory and maybe even uh, in the prevention of uh, Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think anyone maybe with a family history of Alzheimer's disease or who's concerned about memory, it could be a helpful uh, herb. Uh, from some of my research too, I think, you know, Alzheimer's disease is definitely something obviously becoming more and more common as the uh, population ages, but it's not necessarily as common uh, in India where there's a high turmeric mm -hmm. uh, intake. And as you probably know too, so the active ingredient in turmeric is the curcumin, right? Which is, which is where we get the word curry. Right. So, but India in general, you know, they tend to have a higher intake of the turmeric and curcumin. So, so maybe in a roundabout way that contributes to the reduced incidence of Alzheimer's disease compared to, you know, those in, you know, those in the Western uh, hemisphere. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I, I have read and it's obviously multifactorial and I need to revisit this literature, but also, you know, speaking more than one language I've heard has also helped with kind of uh, reducing the risk of like early onset dementia and maybe even um, Alzheimer's but you know from the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's being related to you know inflammation and things like that I guess you know that's probably why there is a correlation that turmeric may reduce the risk of um, Alzheimer's am I 
right in kind of thinking yeah. that way. Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. And, uh, and and from what I've read too, turmeric also helps increase uh, BDNF, which is a called uh, brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor. So it's kind of a, a protein, I guess, or a factor that, that's made in the brain that helps uh, with uh, neurogenesis or, you know, neuroplasticity of the brain. So mm -hmm. basically helps uh, new nerves to, you know, we used to believe when I was in med school, actually, uh, we used to believe that the brain could not be, you know, regenerated right. or, you know, once, once you lose brain tissue, that's it. And, and now, we know otherwise that the brain is very plastic and it can be regenerated but you know every thought everything we learn every experience we have are actually creating new neurons and new connections and and uh, that bdnf is one of those uh, factors that's really important to do that so yeah so turmeric helps with that exercise helps with that uh -huh. you know so and this is what i tell patients too and they're worried about memory loss even i say hey you need not only do you need to eat right and have a diet you know rich in, in antioxidants and fruits and vegetables and you know these certain supplements that you know can potentially be helpful but you need to exercise as well and and i think again the problem with western medicine is we're like oh you have uh memory issues here's some aricept here's some nemenda mm -hmm. oh that's not working and you know we just kind of leave it at that and again it's never that simple you know while those medicines may be helpful they might only be a small part of that equation so if there's 20 things contributing to a person's memory loss we need to address all 20 things and that's again goes back to being a whole a holistic approach right yeah. you know and you got to address all 20 whereas each individual one you may not notice any significant difference and that's why maybe a lot of these studies don't show don't show benefit because it's kind of like giving you know giving a person who's in debt a dollar and uh -huh. of course they don't go out of debt with the dollar so therefore right. the conclusion is money will not get you out of debt right Right. right. It's, it's just not enough. You know, we need, we need to address the whole thing. That's right. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> you know, um, in prepping for this interview, also, I learned that you wrote a, a book back in 2009 called The Vitamin D Prescription, The Healing Power of the Sun and <clears throat> How It Can Save Your Life. Talk about why you decided to write that book and what that process was like writing that book in the context of being a full-time family doctor and maybe some important points as well that you discussed in that book. Sure. So now, now you have to remember this was in 2009 mm -hmm. in, Southern, in Southern California, right, which has the most sun probably of, you know, one of, you know, if, if almost anywhere in, in the United, in the world, you know, probably 330 days of, of sun per year. And here I am testing my patients for a vitamin D deficiency. Right. And, and at the time there was only one other book on Amazon and it was written like around 2001 and, and so on. And obviously it didn't get much uh, traction because it took, you know, almost another decade for vitamin D deficiency to become a, uh, you know, to become commonly known and accepted. So, so I've always been kind of a contrarian. So kind of, you know, go, go against the grain and whatever aspect uh, of life. And so I'm trying to remember exactly how I, I think it was a patient who came to me and they said, Hey, the patient came to me. She had really bad fibromyalgia. And she said, Hey, can you check my vitamin D level? I'm like, we're in Southern California. Your, your vitamin D level is great. She's like, no, no, I was reading this thing on the internet. Right. And again, this is like 2007, maybe uh -huh. 2006. So the internet, you know, in many cases didn't, you know, it was kind of a joke back then. Right? Would you see that the internet yeah. now, obviously a little more credibility. <laughs> um, so she's like, you know, I read it, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just being open-minded, I said, Hey, let me look at what you got. And, you know, let me see. So I look up, I do some research on vitamin D deficiency. I look up the Merck manual and it talks about vitamin D deficiency can cause muscle aches, joint pains, 
and I'm like thinking, oh my gosh, this sounds like fibromyalgia. Right. Right. Almost by by the definition there. So I uh, so I you know go ahead and order a, a vitamin D uh, 25 hydroxy level on her, and sure enough, her level was low. It was like it was like 12. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, what's going on here? So, you know, so I had a couple other patients with fibromyalgia. And at this point, I'm like, you know, I'm going to test them too. Right. I had like maybe five or six patients. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, all of them were deficient. Whoa. Wow. And so I started going to my colleagues. I'm like, hey, look, I've been checking these people for vitamin D deficiency. And they're like, yeah, sure. This is Southern California. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, look, I actually had to bring the lab results to the meetings to show them. And they're and I kind of got their attention. And uh, so uh, so that's kind of where it started. And then I just started doing more and more research and, uh, you know, started reading a lot of the uh, journal articles that were out there. Uh, there's a Dr. Hollick out of Boston, who kind of one of the vitamin D uh, gurus and has done a lot of research on it. Uh, there was a uh, organization down in San Diego, a couple doctors out of UCSD who found that geographical locations where there was less vitamin D, that there are higher rates of colon cancer and breast cancer. Mm. God, yeah, God, yeah. And then, of course, I remember the med school, right? They teach us the latitude and how that increases one's risk for multiple sclerosis. Mm. Right. So then I started researching that. So, you know, because I kind of have like an ADHD personality. Yeah. It started off, I'm thinking, hey, I'm just going to write like a six page article and maybe submit it to the American Academy of Family Physicians. Uh -huh. I was kind of like Forrest Gump. I just kind of kept going, going and going. No particular reason. I just kept on going. <laughs> Next thing you know, I was up to like 200 pages. Right. right. And, you know, printing up, you know, just hundreds, if not thousands of articles. And then I ended up, uh, you know, publishing my book back in 2009 and uh, and then kind of the whole vitamin D wave, you know, and it's had its controversy in a sense since then, you know, like whether or not supplementing is really helpful or not. And, you know, a whole bunch of studies say yes, a few studies say no. And, you know, I think it goes back and forth. Right. Um, but in either case, it definitely, uh, you know, we're still relatively early in understanding uh, the vitamin D, which is actually a hormone, mm -hmm. you know, steroid hormone and how it can affect uh, overall health. And uh, I'm actually thinking of, uh, can't believe it's already been eight, uh, nine years since I wrote the book. Yeah. So I'm actually thinking of uh, starting a, an updated version here for the 10 year uh, anniversary. And, uh, and so maybe I'll have something coming out next year. Yeah. 2019 uh, an updated version yeah that would uh, <clears throat> definitely be timely and you know i totally agree i feel like i hear so much more about vitamin d these days so i feel like you were you know definitely a pioneer back in 2009 um you know writing about themes related to that so how did you go about uh did you wind up like self-publishing that or what was that process like yeah. I, so, so initially uh, I was looking for publishers and it was kind of difficult. So then I kind of, I ended up self-publishing it through Amazon, mm -hmm. which made it nice. And then I reached out to some other uh, literary agents. And if you recall back in 2009, 2008, it was kind of during the uh, economic collapse, oh, yeah. the stock market was down. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met with a guy in Manhattan, a, a book publisher. I was real excited just to even meet with him and stuff. But at the time, uh, publishing companies were being real skeptical and real hesitant because of the, uh, you know, just the economic crisis that was going on. And, you know, people had less discretionary income. So at least that's what he told me that, you know, that nonfiction and so on were, you know, kind of risky at that point. So and I said, OK, that's fine. I, I just ended up self-publishing it and uh, pretty much, you know, it went through Amazon. And that's kind of where, you know, majority of things are purchased, at least when it comes to books nowadays mm -hmm. anyway. So so it's worked out good. Yeah, no, that was great timing. And 
as far as the amount of time that it took you to kind of compile all of that research, you started that kind of in 2007, kind of prompted by this patient. And how long did it take yeah. you and how did you kind of find the, the pockets of time in your day to, to put that together? Uh, man, it wasn't easy. So yeah, so I started researching it in 2007. It was probably when I started seriously writing the book, it was um, probably mid 2008. Mm -hmm. And literally I would, you know, before I would leave my office at the end of the day, I would go on PubMed, pull up a couple articles, print them up, go home and read them. And, you know, sit down on my computer for an hour or two while, uh, you know, my kids were doing their homework or my wife was uh, doing her work or sometimes even when we were watching a, a family movie, right? So that's, that's tough, but uh, you know, I, I frequently tend to do that when we're watching, you know, TV or we're watching TV just cause I don't like to, I try to be productive as much as possible when I'm awake. Yeah, so, yeah. I think most of us try to multitask to the best degree possible. Um, so I would just write, you know, a, a few pages here and a few pages there, and knock out some more on the weekends. And you know, like I said, about a year later, it was I think I think it's around a couple hundred pages, 210 pages or something like that, and just slowly kind of you know worked on it over the course of a year. That's phenomenal. I mean, I, I feel like so many doctors now, especially with the rise of social media and um, having an outlet to kind of get their message out there. There are, you know, so many platforms, including, you know, podcasting now. How did you kind of get started in social media and with the podcasting and what like daily routines, if any, do you have? Um, and it may be similar to kind of what you just uh, discussed about your book and finding time to, right. to get that time in with social media and podcasting but kind of take me through your journey in social media and ultimately finding podcasting and how that all kind of went down right so so i've always been very uh creative you know a creative spirit in that sense i'm always like trying to trying to create new things do new things and kind of push the uh you know push the limits and uh so my first you know like most people yeah, you know, my first uh, experience with social media was myspace right where everyone's uh, best friend was tom and, yep. and uh you know that was back in the early you know 2000s or so um and i remember when i got my first mac uh, computer this was probably like in 2005 2006 and uh, this whole idea of podcasting was pretty uh pretty exciting Again, my dates might be off a couple of years, but I think it was around 2006, maybe 2007. Yeah, latest, and I got my right. first Mac. And there was this thing called podcast. Then I'm like, wow, this is great. So I would experiment actually back then on my Mac. And uh, I actually made a couple of podcasts back then, but I didn't have the time really or the or the material in the sense, uh, the variety and the diversity of material and, and the time to do the editing as well. And it was a lot more complicated than it is now. Oh, yeah. You know, like the anchor app is just amazing yeah and so um i dabbled with it you know a decade ago and then it kind of went on the back burner and i think you know i think i was using podbean i think at the time and they ended up removing the podcast because they you know nothing happened with them for a couple you know for many years mm -hmm. um so then we kind of jumped forward and you know like i said i have uh three kids uh we had my wife and i we had them while i was in medical school mm -hmm. which in, in residency which is uh not necessarily advised but uh <laughs> you know it's, it's difficult, but now that they're older, it's kind of nice because I'm I'm uh, only 46, so I'm right, able to right. have that freedom. But um, anyway, so you know, of course, then with the kids and the social media, you know, I don't want to be one of those uh, old dads, you know, and, and totally out of the loop. Right. So I had to kind of keep my social media skills 
up mm-hmm. right so anyway, i got my instagram account like three four years ago and of course facebook which now i guess is the old person's uh <laughs> right social media right. uh snapchat you know downloaded that like a year ago but didn't really use it it was more just to spy on my kids and right. make sure they're some out of trouble <laughs> and uh but you know then my wife is a little bit more into social media so she would like show me like this is how you do a story and this is how you do it and, and stuff so then i would you know i posted stuff like the instagram a few years ago and you know then i was kind of off it for a while and then i think just with the natural growth of it you know i ended up with with followers um and so on and i got more into it just probably this past summer and stuff started posting more and, and then when i kind of discovered anchor and you know the ability to make podcasts and so on so uh you know just kind of uh and now you know doing that i mean working on between the anchor podcast and you know working on some of my uh, books and things that i write blog articles that i write as well and uh you know and i just try to do that and you know now that the kids are older they don't want to really spend as much time with, with us parents so i have to yeah. find <laughs> me and my wife have to find ways to uh not only enjoy uh, each other, but you know, to entertain ourselves as well. Sure. So, do you have any specific kind of routine with social media or podcasting? Like, do you have specific times of day that you kind of dedicate to that, or is it more of like a, an organic kind of a process where you know you're just posting when you feel like it? Yeah, I'm trying to. You know, I'm trying to maybe post at least one time a day, sometimes more. And if I do it, it's maybe going to be like morning, lunchtime, in the evening, just kind of when I'm not in the clinic or and I have a little bit of uh, spare time. But but as you know, you, you know, we have to really put time limits on things because, you know, you can be on social media and next thing you know, you spend 30 minutes and you're like, wow, I just, I just wanted to post one thing and it was going to take me a minute and now it's been 30 minutes. Right. So it can really zap one's time. So I, I find it important to try to balance that out. And, you know, so if I post like right before I start seeing patients, then obviously I, I won't get sucked into uh, into the media to that degree because I'll have other other uh, responsibilities that I need to tend to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, it's definitely, mm-hmm. definitely a challenge, but I, I feel like it's one of these things that's that's really important. I mean, it depends on who you talk to and definitely um, for more of the old timers in medicine, like there's still a lot of skepticism and fear around it but i feel like the benefits far outweigh the risks as far as like how i see it how do you think social media can be really helpful for doctors in practice yeah i I think it could be very helpful um in the sense uh even when i look at the med students nowadays or we have uh, pa students who rotate with us as well you know, the, the attention span of the millennial generation is definitely shorter in one aspect. Uh, they need rapid uh, transitioning of images, so to speak. So in one aspect, it's, it's a way to educate as well, because, you know, the use of memes, you can really pack a lot of information and a lot of you know quality information. And of course, you always have to be skeptical of the source as well, because pretty much, you know, anyone can say anything and yeah. people are going to believe it. So I think it's important to, you know, kind of fact check whatever's out there as well. But if the sources are reputable and if the people have, you know, some kind of experience behind them and, and so on, then I think, you know, it could be a great tool for ed- education, not only of healthcare providers, but also of just patients in general. Also, it can be a good way for healthcare providers to grow their practice, for healthcare providers maybe to get a, a following, so to speak, who, you know, in the future, if, if one has a book or some other, uh, you know, paper or article that's written, it's, it's easy to uh, disseminate it to, you know, thousands and thousands of people, whereas it would have been very difficult to do that and without the use of social media. Right, it's phenomenal. You know, your your podcast has really taken off, I feel like, in, in a short amount of time, even though 
it's funny when, when you were talking about doing the podcast thing back in the day, me and D, my co-founder of, of Medicine Remix, we did something very similar back. It was a little later than you did even, um, maybe around 2010 or 11. We also kind of hosted on Podbean. And at that time we were, you know, we were roommates. We were like in the same place. We kind of had to be in the same place at the same time. And, um, you know, had all this like recording equipment and we had to edit and figure out all these RSS feeds and stuff. And then it was right. until much, much later that we discovered Anchor and figured out that, you know, we could be doing this remotely and, you know, in any downtime that we had in the hospital or like on our commutes and things like that. But when did you join Anchor? Was it, um, you know, just this past year or? Yeah, this past year, I think I joined it maybe in May. And then, um, you know, like anything, uh, you know, the, the first step is always the hardest uh, thing. So I sat on it for a couple of months mm -hmm. and had my uh, hesitancy. I was scared. I was like, oh my, how about, you know, what if I don't, what if I sound funny? Because of course, none of us like the way we sound when we hear us. Yeah. Uh, so I had that you know, nervousness that I think a lot of people have whenever they're trying to do something new, especially when right off the bat, knowing that I could be under the scrutiny and be evaluated by, by other people. And I remember just telling myself, you know what, the first 10, or maybe even the first 20 are really going to suck, but I got to just do it. And over time, it's just going to get better and better and better. So I had to just kind of stick myself out there and 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 make it work and see what I can do. And, uh, you know, I think I've gotten a little bit better over time and I hope to, you know, even continue to improve as, as the, you know, as time goes on. So basically this summer is when I really just kind of started started doing it. No, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it really has taken off in a short amount of time. We've been kind of, uh, you know, following you, um, you know, from afar and uh, congrats on the success. You've been like featured in, in like the top 10 health related uh, podcasts on Apple. And we even saw you make a few appearances on, you know, the, the top charts uh, overall, which is just phenomenal. Right. Talk a little bit about what your podcast is about and why you think it's had the response that it, it's had, which has been you know tremendous, like I said. Thank you. Yeah, so the, so the title of it is Heal Thyself, which interestingly, when I, I was even skeptical about using that title, right? Because that's kind of like an old term, yeah. Heal Thyself. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, this, this, this shows my age even more. And again, <laughs> I'm only 46, but I'm thinking, is this going to appeal to, it's going to appeal maybe to the seniors, but uh, you know, I don't know how, what percentage of them are listening to podcasts. I want to make sure I'm appealing to all, to all demographics. So I called it Heal Thyself. And really my goal is to provide information and to empower people to heal themselves, right? Because it's not your job as the doctor, or it's not our jobs as the physicians. So to a degree, our job is to heal patients and to help patients and to help improve their quality of life. But but we're only seeing them, you know, I mean, even if you see somebody four times a year for a 15 minute appointment, you're only spending an hour with them each year, mm -hmm. which is just a small blip on a screen. That's right. And so how much information can we really give them? How much can we really do in just a 15 minute appointment that's really going to transform their life? So what we really need to do is put them on the path so that they can change their own life so that they can become encouraged and motivated and to provide them with the resources, the knowledge and the education to continue to work on themselves to heal themselves. And, uh, you know, I kind of feel sometimes I'm, you know, yeah, I'm kind of like a, a life coach and a health coach at the same time, mm -hmm. because, you know, I can tell you something, avoid this or do that. But unless you're going to when my patients leave the office, unless they're going to maybe read an article, read a book or watch a documentary, 
perhaps on, you know, on Netflix or Amazon Prime, which I tend to promote, you know, try to encourage them to do that. Since a lot of people tend to be in love with their, you know, with their uh, TV or with their mobile phones or whatever, they can watch documentaries. But I try to encourage them, like, hey, you need to become a, you know, get a minor in nutrition. Major key alert. Mm -hmm. You need to educate yourself because what I'm doing is only a small aspect of it. So that's really what I'm trying to accomplish is to encourage people to educate themselves, get a minor in nutrition, so to speak, unofficially learn about it, read about it. And you know, the fact is the more we focus on something, the more we will manifest that in our life, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're focusing on health and nutrition, you're reading about it, you're more likely to eat healthier, make better decisions, you know, be more physically active because that's what's in the forefront of your thought process. And that's really what I'm trying to accomplish here, just to empower people. Absolutely. No, I think you're doing a tremendous job and um, definitely, you know, encouraging to see how quickly people have kind of caught on. What are you doing, if anything, as far as, you know, promoting this to your patients and students? Uh, well, I've interviewed, for example, a medical student at Loma Linda because he rotated with me and I think he shared it with a lot of his uh, friends and colleagues so that actually got a lot of a lot of listens and then I would use Facebook as well to promote it where I have a pretty decent following on Facebook mm -hmm. and then also uh, Instagram and then also uh, as I mentioned before my kids you know like most Millennials nowadays are uh, masters of social media so so my uh, my two sons have uh, one has almost 20,000 followers on Instagram, so he's uh, shouted me out a few times on his story. Awesome. And then my other son has almost 160,000 followers, so he shouted me out a few times in the story. So that also kind of drove some traffic to the site as well. Okay, I guess the, the influencers don't fall far from the tree, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like exactly, exactly. Right? Oh, that was another thing too. My son had, uh, my son also uh, has a business podcast and uh, he started out a couple of years ago. So, uh, you know, in a roundabout way, I, I was re-inspired again. I'm like, you know, if my if my son, and he's not even using Anchor, he's doing it the old school way. Uh -huh. But I'm thinking, hey, if my son can, you know, start a podcast and do well with it, I go, you know what, let me, let me try this again and let me, uh, you know, restart this process and so on. So again, I, I was kind of, you know, our, ch our children inspire us in many ways, mm -hmm. you know, that we don't always realize, you know, when, when they're young, we don't realize how they'll inspire us when they get older. But I think uh, any parent out there has kids that we're, we're inspired in many ways by our own children who will, uh, you know, teach us things about ourselves that we never realized. Yeah, that's phenomenal. You know, just a, a few like quick questions and we'll wrap this up. I want to be mindful of your time. And sure. Let's get back to uh, enjoying the mountain there. Um, Thank you. Uh, so I found in prepping for this interview also that you've been doing um, missionary work in Haiti since 2006. <laughs> And I just wanted you to maybe touch on how you got into doing that kind of work and any notable experiences or impacts that uh, this work has had on your life and your practice. Yeah, I'll be honest, the, the going, going on these missionary trips has actually been life changing, to be rather honest. One of my colleagues, he had been going to Haiti. The current medical group I work with, it's Rancho Family Medical Group in Southern California. We're in like Southwest Riverside County and you know, there's like seven, we have like 17, 18 doctors and probably just as many PAs and nurse practitioners. And uh, so, so I joined the group back in 2005 and, and one of my colleagues had been going to Haiti for about uh, 10 years or so, about seven years at that point. And, and he got interested because his patients, he had a couple of patients who had started a, uh, a non-denominational, it's a religious based, Christian based, but it's a non-denominational. Uh, missionary group so he basically added the medicine to it so we would go out there and, and basically uh, provide medical outreach to uh, those in the uh, what's called the central plateau of Haiti about a about a uh, maybe a three-hour drive from Port-au-Prince 
And, uh, and I, I've gone probably about a dozen times over the last 10 years. We go for about one week at a time. And, and I'll be honest, like it's really changed my life in the sense of, you know, I mean, let, let's face it, everyone has problems. We all have problems. And even here in the United States, right, the richest country in the world, one of the higher sta highest standard of living in the world, but yet we're still anxious, we're still depressed, we still have insomnia. And then I kind of realized that a lot of it really just comes down to perspective because I, I've been to, you know, for the most part, even the, the poorest here in this country, for the most part, I mean, there's always exceptions, but for the most part, we pretty much have a roof over our head. We, you know, pretty much are getting at least one meal a day and, and so on. And, you know, and obviously we have high, higher expectations for, you know, for us here in America, but, you know, we have clothes, you know, we have shoes for the most part. And, and when, when I went to Haiti, it just, it just broke my heart because, you know, th there's still so many people there who don't even have the basic necessities that we all take for granted. So, and by that, I mean shelter, right? Or they might live in a in, a, in an adobe-like house with mud walls and a, and a thatched roof. Uh, so of course, when it rains, which it frequently does over there, you know, water leaks into the house and then they have a, a dirt floor or they may not have shoes. So there's a lot of kids, you know, running around with no shoes on, you know, or they have to walk five or six miles to a well to, you know, to be able to provide water, to get water for the family. And so, so it really just kind of, I think, allowed me to appreciate the situation that I'm in and that we are in here in the United States, but then also just to be more mindful of others around the world and saying, hey, you know, when we're in a position where we can help others and provide medical care and, and do things that we need to make sure we give back because not everyone has the, the good fortune, you know, that we have. I mean, to see a kid, for example, I, I had one patient there and he was probably about nine years old and he comes up to see us and he has pus coming out of his ear. Oh God. Right. Mm. A horrible case of otitis media. He has a ruptured uh, tympanic membrane, a ruptured eardrum. And I asked them, I go, how long has this been going on? And they said three weeks. So this kid has pus wow. coming out of his ear for three weeks because they didn't have the money to get an antibiotic or they didn't have the resources there to see a doctor so they could get an antibiotic, Worst. which, you know, really just cost, you know, maybe a couple of dollars wholesale. Wow. And so, of course, we gave him the antibiotics and, you know, and, and uh, he was able to get better and stuff. But again, you know, things like that. And it's only a two hour flight from Miami. It, it, it's a tragedy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think really perspective is uh, a very valuable medicine. And it's, um, you know, definitely something that I get quite a bit every time I, you know, go back to see where my parents grew up in, in India. Right. And um, there's so many places like that around the world when, you know, you really start to see the difference between third world problems and first world problems and i think there's nothing like actually being in the setting itself to really drive that point home right um how often do you get to to do this uh, i go to haiti uh, once a year and uh okay and uh, and just recently actually about two three weeks ago i came back from the philippines which is the first time i had done a mission trip to the philippines okay so, so that was uh that was fun and exciting and so we had about you know about seven or eight days of uh, medical outreach and then uh, a few you know about four days of just r and r and fun and relaxation so that, that was nice yeah yeah is that typically the time frame that you spend in haiti as well you're there for for like a little over a week yeah so haiti tends to be about seven days just because it's a, a little easier to get there and then uh, philippines it's about a, a 12 to 14 day trip amazing and you do this through your practice essentially or i do yeah i do so there, there's about three or four other doctors in our practice and then we'll we'll go various times throughout the year to uh 
to Haiti or to the Philippines. Always making sure that we don't leave at the same time in the sense, right. uh, because it'd be too uh, too much work for the, those who stay behind. Right, uh, right. But, but one of the nice things too, I think uh, about going, doing these medical uh, outreach trips to medical mission trips is one of the things that it kind of helped reinvigorate my excitement for medicine too, because I feel that when we go there, we can simply just be doctors, right? Yeah. And we're not worried about, is this drug covered? You know, cause we, we take medicines with us. Right. So we have our, our formulary that we're going to work from. Uh, but again, we're not worried like, Hey, let me give you a prescription. It's not covered. I'm going to get a call back and from the pharmacy yeah. or I don't have to spend, uh, if I spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes with a patient, I don't have to go spend another 10 minutes documenting the whole note and the whole visit and what went on just from a uh, med legal perspective you know we literally could just see patients take care of them do what's necessary and just keep moving on so we'll literally see hundreds and hundreds of patients uh, each day that's amazing so, so it's really it's really nice in the sense because it kind of brings the joy back in medicine that sometimes you know being a doctor is fun but we have to admit it, it, healthcare providers the fun part is you know for you is probably doing the surgery or are actually taking care of the patient but the not so fun part is you know, spending half the day on a computer, uh, left clicking, right clicking and typing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, I mean, most of the job, you know, winds up being in the documenting and the electronic medical record and dealing with insurance companies and all of those, you know, I guess, first world problems that, right. that we're dealing with. But then on the flip in the third world, when you don't have to deal with any of that, it's just like, wow, well, I'm actually like way happier here right. because I don't have to. <laughs> you know, do all of um, all of those things that are causing my first world Exactly. Problems. You know, because no one goes into med school, say, hey, I'm going to med school because I want to sit, spend half my day sitting in front of a computer typing and clicking, right? We go there to help people. That's right. Uh, That's so right. definitely very, uh, very enriching. Awesome. Well, Eric, this was phenomenal. We covered a lot of different ground here. Um, I would love to do a round two at some point as, you know, we continue to follow the success of your podcast and all the, the exciting things that you're doing with uh, social media and Definitely keep us posted on the vitamin D prescription 2.0. <laughs> we'll definitely uh, promote the, the hell out of it on um, on Medicine Remixed. And um, where can people find you um, in general on social media? Uh, so on Instagram, just uh, Eric uh, Eric Madrid MD, and also the same on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Eric Madrid MD. Awesome. And you know we'll provide all the links um, in our show notes. And I'm sure you've heard a few of our episodes. Absolutely. Of, you know we do like kind of this mixtape style of uh, podcasting. So we'll get this, you know, chopped up and mixed in, in the next few weeks. And um, I think people are, are uh, really going to get a lot out of it. Yeah. Cool job, by the way, too. I, I really enjoy it. I, I enjoy the mix and you guys do a great, uh, great job with the sound effects. And uh, and I, I always look forward to, uh, to listen to your episodes when they come out. So I uh, really appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Documentary. Documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? This is probably one of the hardest things to do, and that's ask for help. We need your help. On any front. Asking for help medically. I don't need therapy. Asking for help life-wise. Need help. Need help now. Asking for help supporting Medicine Remix. I guess it's all uncomfortable. Uh, no easy way to do it until now. The folks over at Anchor have decided to unveil something that we think is pretty dope. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called listener support. And the way it works is you go to anchor.fm slash medicine remixed, and it'll take you to our page. There's a support 
button, click on it, follow what it says, and bam, you have now donated the vital blood to this organism that it needs to keep on pumping. Thanks for listening. Medicine Remix.